lesson this morning is Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 to 32. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him. As he passed, Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you that in your providence that you have this word to speak to us this day. That it meets each and every one of us wherever we are in our walk with you. And so may your spirit grant us encouragement, strength, insight, wisdom, and understanding now. And may we read and mark your word well and be all the more, all the more uh, understanding in who Jesus is and what he has done and who we are called to be. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A tactic for combat, a strategy that has been used in warfare for for ages, is for an army to give the appearance of doing one thing in order to draw the enemy into a trap. For those of you who enjoy history, particularly military history, you've inevitably come across this in your reading and studying, whether in Hannibal's march to Rome, the American Revolution, the war between the states, or World War I or World War II. It's a tactic of war that we also find in the Bible, particularly in Joshua chapter 8. You may recall that Israel's armies were defeated in Joshua 7 at the city of Ai on account of the sin of Achan, who took some of the devoted things to the Lord. Israel was the superior force, but soundly defeated in only their second battle in the Promised Land. After dealing with Achan, we then read at the beginning of chapter 8, And Yahweh said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise and go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves lay an ambush against the city behind it. So the strategy comes comes straight from Yahweh, from the Lord, and then we read this next. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. 
And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, They are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from your ambush, from the ambush, and seize the city. For Yahweh your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of Yahweh. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out. And they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. So the stage is set. What happens next? Joshua rose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up and he and the elders of Israel before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. So Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. And if you've read this story before, you know, what, you know what happens next. And if you haven't, well, then you can probably guess. Then Yahweh said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven. And they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against their, the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them, so they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. Now Joshua, the armies of Israel, used a measure of deception, didn't they? They, they pretended to be afraid and fled before the army of Ai. But that was all part of the strategy. And who told them to fight this way? Well, Yahweh, the Lord. He gave Joshua and Israel the wisdom they needed in order to defeat the enemy. They had to trust the tactics he gave. They had to believe his word and obey that this was the way for Ai to be defeated. Well, that's a principle that is still true for God's people today, that we need to fight the battles before us through obedience to the Lord and his word, trusting him with the outcome. And a case can be made that there are aspects of these tactics for battle demonstrated in our text this morning which is the central point of Genesis 32 and 33. 
this famous story of Jacob's wrestling match with God is sandwiched in between Jacob's preparations for Esau and his subsequent meeting of Esau in chapter 33. Jacob has sent gifts ahead of him, hoping to mollify Esau, who is approaching with 400 men, an army. Jacob has divided his camp into two, each to be guarded by the angelic armies he encountered at Mahanaim. Last week in verses 9 to 12, they were central to the text where Jacob prays to Yahweh. It's a covenant prayer founded upon his relationship with God. It's a humble prayer and it's an honest prayer, even as he readily confesses his fear of Esau. And yet, despite his fear, Jacob is obedient to the command of God to return to the land. He continues to display his faith and trust in Yahweh. In verse 21, uh, Jacob leaves uh, the camp uh, at night. Um, Well, it leaves Jacob in the camp at night, having sent the present ahead to Esau. And that's where things pick up again in verse 22. And this morning, we're going to come at the text in a slightly different way. But trust it will be a beneficial exercise. And that... As we pursue a deeper understanding of this rich passage, that that our faith will be further encouraged and challenged in the life of striving to which we are called, that we'll be more battle-ready, able to act with greater wisdom and maturity. So what's the first thing we should notice? Jacob's encounter with the man is at night, as noted just a moment ago. But the text is very clear to point out this detail in order to set the stage for what takes place. You know, if we were reading Genesis straight through, we would have already encountered some other important events that take place at night. In Genesis 15, God cuts a covenant with Abraham at night. In Genesis 19, God sends his angels to Lot at night. In in chapter 20, God speaks to Abimelech at night. Then later in the history of Jacob's children of Israel. God will put to death all the firstborn of Egypt in the dead of night and consequently deliver Israel from slavery as recorded in Exodus 12. You may have noticed the reading uh, in the reading from Joshua 8 that night is mentioned two times and that you're almost given uh, that Joshua spent the night among the people and then he spent a night in the valley. Um, And if we're doing the math of that, if it's not kind of Repeating the same story means that the defeat of Ai was on a third day. But regardless, night is a time of death. It often symbolizes death. But then it's a death that leads to a new age or a new day. This pattern is established in the creation week with the evening and morning refrain that we hear in the opening chapter of Genesis, which is a movement from darkness to light. And that pattern continues throughout Scripture and is alluded to here. So the fact that what's about to take place with with Jacob takes place at night is a clue that a death of some form or fashion is about to happen. But then something new is about to come about as well. Practically speaking, the fact that it was night also means it would have been difficult for Jacob to see. Secondly, the text is also clear to emphasize that Jacob was alone. He'd taken his wives, two servants, and children across the Jabbok, which was a tributary of the Jordan River. So it's basically synonymous with the Jordan mentioned back in verse 10. Interestingly enough, the Jabbok is located in a valley, in a somewhat mountainous region. If you were to go, if you were to Google the Jabbok River, you can see some pictures of what that area looks like. Well, consider the imagery then. Jacob is in a valley at night. He's in a valley of the shadow of death, we might say. 
But again, he's alone. His family is a short distance away when he's attacked by the man, but he's alone. A third point that the text is clear to make is that Jacob wrestles a man. It doesn't say angel, but man. Now, we're so familiar with this story, and we know that Jacob is wrestling with God that our minds automatically think that way. Jacob even says as much in verse 30. Furthermore, Hosea 12 states of Jacob, In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. But still the text says, man. What's the theological import of that? Well, we'll let that question linger for a few minutes. A fourth significant detail of the text is the mention of the breaking of the day and of the sun rising. What's that indicative of in Scripture? Well, deliverance, redemption, resurrection, and new creation. And as the dawn began to break, the man with whom Jacob wrestled touched or struck the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Now, the Hebrew word used there can be translated touch or struck. Perhaps we imagine that he just touched Jacob and magically injured his hip. I'm inclined to think that struck is probably the better sense of the term, kind of conveying the idea that he punched Jacob in such a way as to injure him. The man, the angel of Yahweh, tells Jacob to let him go because of the dawning of the day, but Jacob refuses until he receives a blessing. The urgency of being let go seems to be related to the fact that Jacob would have been able to see... uh, been able to see God more clearly, which no man has done, not even Moses, as we read later in Exodus 33. So this seems to be ultimately for Jacob's protection. But before the blessing, the man asked uh, the man, uh, God asked him his name. And so he replies, Jacob, which equals heel grabber. And remember that a name is connected to the person, is, is representative of the whole, but also has to do with authority. When you know someone's name, you have a measure of control over him or her. You know, if, if, if I say Brian and he hears me, he has, to, he has to respond or deal with me in some way. When you call your children by their name, you're exercising a measure of authority over them. When Adam named Eve and the animals, that was evidence of his authority. Related to this may be the explanation as to why the man doesn't give Jacob his name in this circumstance because it's God and Jacob doesn't have authority over him in a manner of speaking. But God says to Jacob, your name shall no longer be heel grabber, but Israel, which means God wrestles or God wrestler or God's wrestler. And the overlapping meanings are a pun of sorts and all are applicable This wrestling with God will be part and parcel with the nation of Israel's vocation as priests on behalf of the world. They will wrestle with God. They will intercede. They will wrestle with the world and pray on its behalf. And surely you can immediately see the calling and identity of the church, the new Israel still carrying on this name and these duties in the world today. The striving to which we're called, particularly when it comes to prayer. So Jacob has wrestled with men and with God and prevailed. But why was God wrestling with Jacob in the first place? Was it because Jacob was wicked and so God was seeking to overpower him in order to put him in his place to bring him to a point of repentance? No, that's not what's going on here. This is not the account of Jacob's conversion. Otherwise, Jacob defeating God doesn't make any sense whatsoever. 
as we took some time to consider last week, particularly regarding some key texts from Genesis 25. Jacob is a righteous man, a blameless man, a complete man. Furthermore, a proper reading of Genesis 28 and Jacob's encounter with God at Bethel shows again that he's a righteous man, a man who loves the covenant and the things of God. Also recall that Jacob's wrestling in prayer in verses 9 and 12 of, uh, of chapter 32 further evidences his faith and the quality of it. Jacob's not an unconverted man that the Lord is trying to beat into shape. No, something else is entirely in view. And this comes back to our question about why the text is so clear to say that a man wrestled with Jacob. As one theologian directs our understanding, the message of Peniel is this. It was God who raised up Esau, Isaac, and Laban to wrestle with Jacob. All those years when Jacob wrestled with these three enemies, it was really God with whom he had to do. And why? Not to punish Jacob, but to train him to make him strong. Just as a father gets down on the floor and wrestles with his children, so God had wrestled with Jacob. Just as a father sets hard tasks before his children to train them for adult responsibilities, so God had raised up difficulties to train Jacob. God had wrestled with Jacob, not as an enemy, but as a father. And to what end? To the end that Jacob might become strong and mighty in wisdom and discernment. The goal, amazing and incredible as it sounds, was for Jacob to become strong enough to wrestle with the angel of Yahweh and prevail. God doesn't want slaves, nor does he want his people to be children forever. He wants mature sons and daughters who can take their proper places at his right hand. And think about this. Abraham primarily had to exercise a waiting faith. His experience was mostly one of patience, waiting on God to fulfill promises. And as a result, Abraham was made a prophet. He became a member of God's council, which is what we see taking place in Genesis 18 when Yahweh comes and asks Abraham what to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. Jacob, however, matured primarily through a wrestling faith to the point where he could wrestle with God and prevail. Granted, both took a long time, but that's how each are portrayed. And our experience as believers is both of these waiting and wrestling, sometimes with seasons of one more than another. But there's never a moment in your life when you aren't waiting or wrestling or both. And Abraham's status as God's counselor didn't mean he held it over God somehow, but it was a position he exercised with great humility. Again, the conversation that Abraham has with God in Genesis 18 and how he humbly appeals on behalf of these cities. Similarly, Jacob's victory doesn't mean that now he dominates God. No, just the opposite, really. As one writer observes, Jacob's, Jacob was wrestling for God's blessing. I will not let you go unless you bless me. See, Jacob wrestled to be in submission to God. He fought to be in the kingdom under the rule of the king. Luke 16, Jesus says, The law and the prophets were until John... Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. The man who seeks to be submitted to God is the man who wrestles with God and prevails. Well, Jacob not only received a new name, but he was rewarded with something else, wasn't he? He was given a limp. And think back, when was Abraham's name changed? 
Well, after he'd suffered the wound of circumcision. Well, similarly, Jacob's name is changed after he suffered this thigh wound. And as indicated to us in the story of Genesis 24, the thigh is connected to the organ of generation. It's in the general neighborhood of private parts, and so there's some correlation to what's uh, of that in what's pictured here. But consider that for the rest of his life, Jacob limped. And the limp wasn't a sign of defeat, but of victory. Then verse 31 tells us, The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Peniel and Penuel are basically identical in Hebrew, so don't let that throw you, and it means face of God. But just picture the scene in your imagination. Jacob crosses over into the promised land victorious with the sun rising behind him. The rising of the sun is a sign of victory and might. In the last line of her victory song in Judges 5, Deborah declares, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. Or the description of the victorious Jesus in Revelation 1.16. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Jacob could be assured of victory because of his limp. And he could have this assurance because he understood the promise of Genesis 3.15. He knows and believes that the serpent's head will be crushed and he also knows that the serpent bruises the Messiah's heel. In fact, the serpent bruises the heel of all of the Messiah's people. And so the question is posed to you, which would you rather have, a bruised heel or a crushed head? As one biblical theologian observes, the church always limps and this is because she always has the bruised heel. There are always embarrassments. There's always infighting. There are always inadequate responses. There are always problems. This can be very discouraging, especially when we look at the well-ordered troops in Satan's army. They don't seem to limp. They stride forward boldly and confidently, carrying out their plans in concert and unity, or so it appears. Yet from the perspective of eternity, things look radically different. The head of the enemy, Satan, is crushed. The enemy's army may have good feet and be able to march, but it has no unifying philosophy, no head. It has no patience and no perseverance. When history is over, what looked like the enemy's well-coordinated effort will be shown to have been a rout, for no army can endure without a head. And the, the church, her head is alive. He coordinates his limping kingdom by his spirit. What looks like chaos to us as the church limps in circles is from the perspective of eternity a beautiful dance, outwardly spiraling, a dance that will eventually draw all the universe into itself. The limping church is sure to win eventually because a headless army of opposition cannot endure. Jacob's limp, though painful, was his reminder that he had wrestled with God and prevailed. It was the sign of his victory, of his eternal security as a member of God's kingdom and of the eventual victory of God's holy kingdom. Jacob's limp was also his reminder that as God's champion, he would often prevail by means of a direct, not by means of a direct assault, but by yielding to his enemies. Like Isaac, like Isaac in Philistia, he would move on and dig another well when he encountered opposition. When compelled to go one mile, he would go a second mile. He would pay his taxes and submit to human authority, even when that authority was oppressive. He would take up a shame-filled cross and carry it with humility. Like a skillful wrestler, 
he would be willing to fall to the ground in order to get a better grip on his opponent. In this way, he would eventually prevail. Well, maybe you've guessed guessed it already, but once again, Jesus is a picture of Jesus in this account. Jacob was alone in the dark and at night and wrestled with God. Jesus was alone in the dark and night of Gethsemane and wrestled with God in prayer and won through his submission to his father, even through the means of the cross. Jacob received a limp as a sign of his victory, and Jesus' body bore the scars of his victory, even as he revealed to the disciples after his resurrection. Jacob received a new name, Israel, and as Paul tells us regarding Jesus in Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Just as God had a purpose for all of Jacob's wrestlings with men, likewise, he had a purpose for all of Jesus' wrestlings with men. And as Jacob's wrestlings with men were also wrestlings with God, that was also true of Jesus. Peter declares in his Pentecost sermon, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Isaiah 53.10 states, Yet it was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And just as God had a purpose for Jacob in all of his wrestlings, in all of his struggles with men, he needed to realize that behind all of them was God himself, the God of his father Abraham and the God of his father Isaac. All along, Jacob was wrestling with him. And so we too need to realize the same. And guess what? Your heavenly father wants you to win the wrestling matches with him. And just as Jacob came to see that the men with whom he struggled were sent by God and were ultimately wrestling matches with God himself. Nevertheless, it was the same God who promised to bring him through all of these struggles. Put another way, the same God who struggles with you is the same God who is for you. He wants you to win. He's wrestling with you to make you strong, not destroy you. Difficult circumstances, troubles and trials, difficult relationships, yes, they can be painful. They can really hurt. And we can really suffer loss in some form or fashion. And sometimes we come away with, from such encounters with scars and limps, but they're ultimately for our good conforming us ever more to the image of Jesus, the greater Israel, the greater God's wrestler. And certainly there is encouragement in that, that despite the pain that's suffered, yet there's a wise heavenly father behind it all who has your best in mind, who is for you. And so great is his love for you as his son or daughter that he's endeavoring to make you stronger and more mature. That's true of us individually as believers and also true of us collectively as the church. As we strive with others, as we strive with the Lord, particularly in prayer. Again, consider this other nighttime wrestling match that took place. That the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. And yes, Peter, James, and John were nearby, but they were sleeping. And Jesus went a little farther by himself and fell on the ground. And what was his closing petition to his father? Yet not what I will, but what you will. 
See, Jesus too wrestled to be in submission. And from that submission came blessing. Even the salvation of the world, the rescue from sin and the reconciliation of all things in heaven and on earth. And so let us imitate the greater Israel in the same, recognizing our dependency upon God, giving ourselves anew to obedience to His Word, which is our manual for the battle in which we're engaged. That the way of obedience and submission is the way of blessing. And though it may not appear to be the watching world, it's also the way to victory. And so as a wrestler who is willing to take falls, to throw himself down in order to ultimately gain an advantage over his opponent, despite the pain he might inflict upon himself. So let us engage in such tactics. So let us train. So let us mature in the faith. May the church, may we understand more fully the calling as the new Israel, as God's wrestlers, and that the injuries sustained in that calling are not the evidences of defeat, but of victory. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the way that the Scriptures tell us the story of Christ. We thank you for the story of Jacob that teaches us more about Christ our Savior and King. And so may we be imitators of Jacob become Israel. May we be all the more imitators of Christ who submitted himself to you, that we might be saved. And so may we follow our Savior in the same, seeking first your kingdom and its righteousness. May we daily take up our crosses and die to ourselves, and so deny ourselves that we might be faithful servants to you and in your kingdom and for the sake of the church and the world. Strengthen us to these ends and direct our faith to this truth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.